Okay, let's uh, open up with a word of prayer. Um, yeah, hand up to that. Um, Father, we do thank you again for this time and this, um, this this morning, Lord, to gather together to study your word. Father, I just pray that you would uh, <clears throat> help us to, um, uh, for the time being, Lord, just push other distractions and concerns of the day to the side, Father, so um, we can uh, focus more intently on understanding uh, the Old Testament this morning, Father. I just pray that um, the words of my mouth would be edifying to your sons and daughters in this room, Lord God, and that anything that is unhelpful would pass away, Lord, um, so that you would receive honor and glory this time, Lord. Once again, we ask that you ignite a uh, passion in our hearts, Lord God, for your word, Father, um, for that uh, two-thirds of the book that's so often ignored, Lord. And um, as you do that, we will give you all the glory for it. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me put this here. I the hardwood floors, but with all the heels, it makes it difficult to hear things walking across it. Okay. So, um, this week is the last week of our series on wrapping up understanding the Old Testament. And this is the week in which I'm probably going to be doing the, the most stuff, unfortunately, because I always normally like to review. And in this case, it means reviewing everything that came before um, in, the, in the Old Testament. So we'll just kind of run through that quickly, just to see where, where we were and um, set up where we are and what's coming in the future, that is, in the New Testament. Um, now you notice, uh, you'll, you'll recall that I broke down the Old Testament in ten themes, that ten E-words. And so I've given you uh, eight of the ten just under the, the first point. Um, you recall that, um, and I've kind of put them together in bullet points there as I think they kind of nicely link together. Um, so the story starts with um, Yahweh, the creator God, creating his um, creating the world, creating this, um, this kingdom, this domain that he is going to exercise his rule over, right? And um, we noted parallels between, um, uh, well, moving back further, we noticed that in the creation structure, the six days, you notice that one thing that's emphasized is that God creates his world according to wisdom, right? Remember how we noted the patterns between the first and the, the, the third days and the second and the fourth, etc. And uh, then God establishes um, the garden and puts man in the garden, right, to rule it, and he... And Adam is called to be a king and a priest, right? Uh, before God, he's supposed to be a vice regent under Yahweh, right? So he is sovereign over all the earth with the exception of uh, God himself, who governs him by his word. And Adam is given these two uh, callings as king and a priest, but in the fall narrative of Genesis 3, he essentially um, repudiates those roles, right? Instead of exercising dominion over the serpent, he listens to um, what the serpent has to say about the character of God. Instead of expelling the serpent from this holy place, right, as we noted, the parallels between um, uh, Eden itself, the garden in Eden, and later the tabernacle, that it was a sacred space where God himself dwelt. Um, he should have expelled the serpent. Or better yet, in terms of Genesis 3, he should have crushed the head of the serpent, but instead, he did not. Right? So, this people of God, that, in this case, Adam and Eve, that are placed in this perfect environment, right, and are to retain this land, 
by obedience to the word of God are then expelled from uh, the garden. And I said that this doesn't just tell us about our, our first parents, but rather it sets a model, it creates a paradigm for understanding later Israel's own experience as a nation. Um, and you you notice patterns like this all throughout the Old Testament, right? um, where the life of a single individual foreshadows what's going to be true of the nation as a whole. Um, and after Genesis three, we notice this, this downward spiral, this in, increase in sin, and there's um, there's the movement of God's grace in electing, and that is in choosing and setting His grace upon Noah and his family to save them, and He. he pours out his judgment upon everyone else and you would think okay this is going to improve things but it's really only um, a ha- it, it effectively becomes a half measure because the sin problem is in the hearts even of the righteous right? so after um, the flood God still says every intention of the heart is only evil continually and this gets so there's a kind of break there, but after Noah and his family continue to multiply, whereas things get continuously worse again up to the, the Babel incident with this unified front uh, of rebellion against God. And I, the way I say it is that God in this severe mercy disperses their languages, confuses them, and disperses them, rather, uh, all over the earth to continue doing what they were made as image bearers of God to do, that is to fill the earth. I remember you said one of the things that indicated their rebellion was that they said, let's stop, let's settle here. Right? Let's build this tower. Right? So they said, let's, let's, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. That is, they're fusing them together. It represents permanence and stability there. Um, so you have this in, in, uh, in Genesis 11, you have this um, battle story, this unified front of rebellion. And then in Genesis 12, you have the next major turning point in salvation history with the call of Abraham. And we know the contrast there between what uh, those who were building the tower said about themselves, let's make a great nation, I'm sorry, let's make a great name for ourselves, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and what God gives Abraham as a gift. He says, I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. So you have this turning point, this hinge, and the rest of the Bible is going to be this developing of what God is doing and working through Abraham and his family. And the way we look at it is that the story of Scripture is essentially bringing out these themes of creation, fall, and redemption. And sometimes you're tempted to think that you have, you know, maybe Genesis 1 and 2 for the creation narrative, Genesis 3 for the fall, and then redemption is all the way over in the New Testament with Christ on the cross. But it starts really right there. Well, it really starts in Genesis 3.15 as we talked about this idea of seed theology. Remember that the, in the, in the, right in the midst of the pronouncing of curse on the serpent, right? God says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And then... It further develops. So it starts very early, but you have this major turning point in Genesis 12 of the call of Abraham. So you have the um, 
creating of the, of the introduction of the narrative in the first opening chapters of Genesis. You have the, uh, the problem that's posed. And then very early on, you have at least the, um, the broad framework of how the problem is going to be solved. So redemption theme starts very early. And if any point, you know, any, want any clarifications or questions, just stop me. B, enslavement. You know that I said that one of the best ways to understand the um, the uh, Egyptian captivity in is- of Israel, right, after um, many historical circumstances, the people, fi- um, the nation of Israel, right, the family of Abraham, finds themselves in Egypt. Um, because they were brought there by their brother Joseph in order to survive and get grain, and preventing them from starvation, etc. But they, but they stay there and they begin to multiply. And you say, as you open up Exodus, you realize, okay, God's promise of multiplying them and, fulfill, and filling the land, right? He promised Abraham that he's going to have descendants as many as the sands on the seashore, right? And, and the stars in the sky. And, um, it's happening, right? But this causes, essentially, this causes uh, friction or, or blowback from, from Egypt. And I said the best way to understand that is in light of this Genesis 3.15, the seed theology. It is the seed of the serpent now coming to destroy and oppress the seed of the woman. In this case, at this stage of the story, it's uh, the people, the family of Abraham. Right? And um, then we move down to the, the Exodus theme where God himself... The God who is the creator shows that he is God the liberator. Right? He is God uh, the savior who in faithfulness and fulfillment of his word to Abraham is going to give, is both going to bring the people out of captivity and is going to bring them into the land that he promised Abraham. Because right? we know that uh, the three characteristics of the covenant that God makes with Abraham is that he is going to um, he's going to uh, make Abraham's seed numerous he's going to give them a land and that they their family is going to have a special relationship with God and therefore going to be a conduit to be a blessing to the nations that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham and his family Uh, how in in Old Testament Mm -hmm. times how did um, other nations other peoples Get integrated into Israel? Did they? Did they really? Well, you have a couple of cases. In the case of like Ruth, who was a Moabite, um, essentially they wound up. I mean, you wound up converting to the God of Israel. And so you think of it, of um, of, uh, of Ruth, and um, she says, "You know, your God is going to be my God. Your people are going to be my people." So you have the, this um, the seed of the woman, this umbrella term for the those who God has a unique covenant relationship with. And in order to receive those blessings, you come into that people to receive the blessings. And when you convert, you, you become a full covenant member. Did they become full covenant members in the nation? I mean, were they, they, were they allowed in the temple? Or I thought there was, there was those who were believers, but they weren't of Israel and, and weren't allowed... Well, what you're describing sounds more like like the New Testament when describing God-fearers, which were Gentiles that were sympathetic to um, to Judaism, but weren't fully going to undergo circumcision, etc. And so they had, like, like I said, they had a respect and a sympathy for Judaism, but they weren't considered full-fledged um, members. 
you know, covenant members. Um, as far as I know, and Scott, <laughs> help me out here. If, it, if you converted, if you went the full measure, then you were considered a full-fledged member of the covenant. Um, this, I mean, you you find out where um, um, I think in the covenant of Abraham, where they circumcised all their male servants and made servants, and the idea is that everyone's included in this covenant. You receive the sign of the covenant. For good or for bad, if you break the covenant, you receive the curses. If you if you obey, then you receive the blessings. But you're included. Right? This becomes, of course, later on uh, in in the Old Testament. This becomes kind of the seedbed for a New Testament mission. When they say, okay, that that idea that you find kind of sprinkled here and there, kind of sparsely throughout the Old Testament, that's going to become true for the Gentiles um, largely. That is to say, there's going to be many that come in, and, and then you have you know you kind of form this. Um, this, uh, what I think is an unresolved tension in the Old Testament that you need to look to the New Testament for, which is, you have these you have these streams of thought in the Old Testament that talk about Gentiles coming in being included in the people of God, and then you also have other streams of thought which say, um, all the enemies of God are going to be destroyed, which would have normally been said, oh yeah, that's Syria, and that's Babylon, and that, that Egypt, those are the, the Gentile nations right, that are in darkness, they're going to be destroyed. And you say, well, how do you reconcile that? And you don't find that kind of more uh, harmonious, even though it becomes an issue with how do you include Gentiles into the church, that becomes an issue that the early church works through. But that's dealt more specifically in the New Testament. Um, is that overkill? Is that like overkill? <laughs> all right. Um, so the Exodus marks, like I said, in fulfillment of God's covenant, right? Um, it marks. Um, the beginning of God's fulfillment to the work that he gave to Abraham to bring them into the land. And we notice three successive movements. Okay? Um, the Exodus event itself, second, the giving of the law, and third, the um, instructions for the tabernacle, and then going ahead and building and erecting the tabernacle. And we said in these three movements, in each step, Yahweh is growing in, in uh, greater and greater intimacy with the people. Right? He saves them. He reveals who he is, and then he comes and he lives with them. And um, whereas, in just uh, one B in the outline, whereas in enslavement, you're talking about them going to a foreign land and being captive. At the end of this kind of uh, three points here, the entrance is in the book of Joshua, where you find the word of God is fulfilled, and he gives them the land, and you have that long... Um, they, they take all these armies. Remember, we looked at that list where I think 31 kings or something that they, that they list. That God has given them the victory. And then they divide up the land. And Joshua says near the end of his life, we know that God has been faithful. And he, everything he said has come to pass. Right? That nothing he said has failed. Okay. Um, okay. So that's... All right. But... As good as that sounds, um, once they're in the land, and this is where the parallels between um, Israel and Adam become very uh, clear. Um, once they're in the land, the good land that God has given them, um, you would think things are right, you know, end of story, happily ever after, but it, it's not. It's exactly one of those things where they're in the land in order to retain the land, they must be obedient to the word of God. They must show that they have been transformed by the grace that he has shown them uh, in all three steps. In the exodus and delivering them and in, in revealing who he is 
and in um, coming and living with them, have they been transformed by that grace? And uh, we know how after Joshua, we, we call this kind of the, the Deuteronomistic history. How Deuteronomy, the blessings and the curses of covenant of the covenant, uh, cast this large shadow over the rest of Israel's history. And how is Deuteronomy going to play out during this time? And we find out both before Moses died and essentially Joshua says this to the people shortly before he dies. He says, you're not going to serve the Lord. You are going to follow after other gods. And they, in harsh ways of describing it, you're going to prostitute yourself before the gods of the nations, etc. And that's exactly what you, what you find. Um, the way I described it, borrowed from one uh, commentator, was that in the book of in the book of Judges, especially, but largely through the rest of the, the the history of national Israel, you find the canonization of Israel. Right? So instead of become instead of being distinct and a light to the other nations, right, because they're reflecting the wisdom of the Word of God, they become consumers of their culture. Just whole, so they just bring on, they take on the other um, the worship of the other gods and including its customs, etc. And this is one of this is part of the genius of the law. Right? We have all these 613 laws that are given to Israel. And you say, why did why do they have laws about your 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 sealing and, and how that should be structured? Because um, religion and culture are so intimately tied. Right? Why, how petty is it that he's saying, don't round your beards, right? don't don't cut them this way? It's because. Um, the religious understanding of the other nations plays out into the way they live every day. Right? And if you're going to be distinct, then you need to, then then your relationship with God shouldn't be this kind of airy fairy pie in the sky relationship. It should work down to the practical details of how you carry out day to day life. Okay? And um, as in the case of judges and and uh, so on. Um, once their relationship with God was compromised, their relationship with one another and the daily practices, etc., uh, continued to get corrupted. Um, to the point where they no longer want God as king. They no longer want the kinds of leaders that the Lord raises up. Sometimes rightly so, if you read the book of Judges. Um, and they ask for a king, and God says to Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king because they wanted a king like the other nations. And we said in Deuteronomy 17, God makes provisions that if you want a king, you can have him, but the one thing he can't be is like is a king like the other nations. It's a the, the vision that's held up for monarchy in Israel is completely countercultural. So it says if you're gonna have a king, fine. But don't think of it in the framework of all the other nations around you. And that's what they wanted. So God says they're rejecting me, they're rejecting my entire way of, of um, leadership. So God gives him a king, and Saul is king at first, but he's, uh, for lack of a better, he's a, he's a dud. His, his, his heart is not really sold out for the Lord and for his covenant. And the Lord raises up David. And David becomes, as we, we know, the, the man after God's own heart. The, the man that God himself chooses and appoints. Right? And though he is flawed and though he is sinful himself, he is a man whose, um, whose, whose heart is one that's drawn to the Lord and wants to be obedient to his covenant, down to the details. Right? Um, and we notice how the reigns of Solomon, David and Solomon, are essentially the high points of Israel's national history. So you have God's people in God's place under God's rule, 
right? Um, even though it's not perfect during this time, it is the high point. And after Solomon, really kind of the second half of the, maybe argue the the uh, the last third of his reign, things start moving downhill even from there as right? so he's building these other sanctuaries for his foreign wives. Um, and things, once again, kind of similar to the judges, get, just get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. To the point where God finally, right, uh, both for um, the two nations, because after the death of Solomon, that's probably why I should refer to this chart here, um, after the death of Solomon, the kingdom splits, right, and you had the uh, ten northern tribes known as Israel, confusingly, and the south was Judah, And um, Israel, uh, rather Judah, has a couple of good, decent kings. Right? Um, you can measure them. You can you can count them on one hand, right, with a couple of fingers left over. But um, the north has no good, no righteous kings. Um, and it has essentially government instituted idolatry set up with these two uh, calves that Jeroboam, the first king of the of the uh, North established, um, and it's just on a downward spiral. And eventually, in uh, 722 BC, they're taken off into exile by the Assyrians. Right? Um, this was all written in the covenant. You can read it in uh, Deuteronomy. And um, so, in 722, they get taken to Assyria. And um, a little while later, in 586. Um, after a number, of, there, were, there were several deportations where the Babylonians came into Jerusalem and beat them up and took some off and killed a bunch, but they left the land intact. And eventually, the culminations in 586 where they destroyed the walls, they destroyed the temple, they killed people, they took them in exile, etc. And they were, were taken to Babylon. And that's where we finished last week, noticing that even in this, this is demonstrating God's faithfulness to his covenant. Um, because it was in the covenant in Deuteronomy right, as, as Moses was uh, re-giving, uh, re-giving the law to the second generation and now we're on uh, Roman numeral 2 which uh, I'm just calling enlightenment um, basing off the, um, the psalm your, your word is a lamp unto my feet uh, bringing light um this is dealing essentially with the, the wisdom slash poetic literature, and we're not going to st- spend too much time in it, but I did want to highlight some things here, right? because normally it's, it's tempting, especially for me, uh, to just kind of jump over the literature, right, and just go back to um, the prophets or the last the last unit. Um, one book, and I brought some with me, but I didn't bring this one, and um, uh, Dominion and Dynasty by Stephen Dempster. He notices the, the pattern, the way that this Old Testament is set up is you have narrative, and then you have this break in the narrative, which is this section. And then after this, you go into the prophets and you kind of... Um, well, actually, he would... Um, yeah, I'll, I'll say that. From the prophets, you continue the narrative on. It's more like a zoom lens. Because it's during this time, of the, right, mostly of the kingdoms and their decline, that you have to plug the prophets in. Right? It's tempting to think when you look at your table of contents that just as the events of Exodus follow the events of, of uh, Genesis, right? that therefore um, Isaiah, being that it comes after 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, happens after. And that's not the case. They actually, he's ministering during that time. 
So Kings and Chronicles gives you kind of the big picture of what's happening historically and everything is developing. And then uh, the prophets, you have the, are kind of a zoom lens, the ministry of one person during this time, and you zoom in and you look at um, how they minister. Could you remind us the Hebrew Bible, how it's set up? Is it set up? Yeah, it's different. In, in well, in terms of the law, the prophets, and the writings. So the law would be the, um, the first five. The prophets are divided a little bit because then they have um, the way the way Christians they put all the prophets together. Yeah, so like the minor prophets are one book, right? The minor prophets, the twelve, is one book. Um, And we normally think of okay, you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, which just has to do with the size of the book, not the importance. And um, those would be the latter prophets, and the former prophets in the Jewish canon would be things that we don't even think of prophetic books, like Joshua. Right? And uh, some, some things that we say, oh, these are historical books. So it's just, the books are all the same. It's just how you cut up the pie is a little bit different between the traditional Jewish canon and the Protestant canon. I mean, um, the, the Hebrew Bible, they do put the writings mm-hmm. at the end so they don't actually break up the narrative. Sorry. I think so, yeah, because the, the last book in the Hebrew canon is Second Chronicles. There's right. a um, Messianic writer who's put out something called the Complete. Jewish Bible. Oh, yeah. Which and it has, uh, yeah. He's, he's messianic, so he's trying to lead to Yeshua. But he's got the books in his, and the traditional Tanakh order. Mm-hmm. Right, and I think he goes according to the Jewish order. Mm-hmm. Um, so this section would be the break in that narrative. Right? And you pick up with the prophets and you get into more details of, of what was happening during this, this time of uh, the split kingdom. Now this was a quote I got from the um, English Standard Version Study Bible that I thought was um, kind of stated things better than I would, so I just gave you the block quote here. Talking about different um, different types of literature and how they function and what's the point of them. The wisdom writings are, are varied character themselves. Right? There is the instructional or proverbial wisdom of Proverbs, basic instructions on in how to live. The contemplative wisdom of Job and Ecclesiastes, pondering the perplexities of life, and the lyric wisdom of the Song of Solomon, celebrating uh, a story celebrating one of God's best gifts. What the books and outlooks have in common, however, is a keen interest in the way the world works, humanity's place within it, and how all this operates under God's creative sovereign care. Biblical wisdom, then might be defined as the skill as skill in the art of godly living or more fully that orientation which allows one to live in harmonious accord with God's ordering of the world and wisdom literature consists of those writings that reflect on or inform that orientation but I want to focus on you just noticed that he knows the proverbial wisdom contemplative wisdom lyric wisdom etc and um, what I want to pull out of here, out of this was um, a couple of themes from the narrative, showing that um, it's not completely disjointed. There is there is um, some uh, intertwining between what's going on outside. It's not like they have their own little world and not addressing the problems that are happening in the nation at the time. Um, themes from the narrative, right? And, and I'm just giving you some examples from the Psalms. Here, uh, one is what I've called the treasure of the word, right? the treasure of the word of God. Remember, it was the word of God that was to be obeyed and treasured in the garden if they were to retain the garden. 
if the word of God that they were to treasure, the covenant relationship with God, if they were to retain the land and not be taken to exile. Right? Um, and uh, one thing I mentioned last week, and I don't think this was recorded, so I'll re- or repeat it now, is you know, there are differences in um, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and sometimes one includes information, one doesn't have it in there. And it leads you to say, well, why is that? And it's the, the intention of the author, what he's trying to do with it. Right? So you have uh, instances like the, the King Manasseh that's portrayed as just an evil, wicked, really bad guy in Second Kings, and it just full stop leaves it there. Whereas Second Chronicles, at least when they repeat the story, they, they kind of they say all that, they acknowledge what Kings has said, but then they go on and they uh, the writer includes his repentance and his prayer of repentance. And it sets a pattern um, that the people would look at and say, okay, um, we're like Manasseh. We've done all this bad stuff, right? So Kings was written probably during the exilic period and saying, this is what got us here. This is, is because we were like just like Manasseh. So we deserve what God has done, what God has done to us. And Chronicles are probably written after the exile and saying, listen, like Manasseh, uh, we messed up, but we need to repent. We need to return to God, right? If we're going to um, receive the covenant blessings of God and of his covenant, then we need to repent just like Manasseh did. Um, So, in the Psalms, in the wisdom literature, I'm using the Psalms here, um, you have these themes of how important the word of God is. Um, not just because it's pretty or well written, but because it essentially sustains their life, right? These are words of life. So, for instance, you start off the book of Psalms, the book of the Psalms of, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit, in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Not so are the wicked. They are like uh, chaff and uh, that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so it's contrasting these two ways. Okay? And that sets the tone. And then the very next, uh, the very next psalm. Um, you know, it has these two themes that just run throughout the Psalms. As the importance of the word, and then the second Psalm establishes God's king, God's righteous Davidic king. Has this, this kind of messianic theme running throughout um, the Psalms. Um, and I've given you some examples, Danielle, like Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119, ones we're familiar with, when the, the importance of um, the word of God. And I've also given you some um yeah, two uh, Psalm two Psalm eighty six and Psalm eighty nine Davidic Psalms, and when I say n- not just on David the historical figure, but the importance of his line, the importance that God has chosen this line to be the line that He is going to rule the earth uh, by means of. Right? Um, and, and Psalm eighty nine is the one I mentioned where. In 2 Samuel 7, when God establishes his covenant, makes his covenant with David, they will always have a descendant. The word covenant isn't used in that context. But when you find in Psalm 89, when they're talking about that same event, they do use the word covenant. Um, let me say that because some people want to see the word covenant attached to, uh, um, 
things that theologians would call covenants. Um, and third would be uh, exile, right? Themes in the exile. Um, and I've given you a range there, so I'm not picking any one particular out. Um, but Psalm 73 to Psalm 89, you have various points in which um, the psalmists are lam- they're lamenting the situation that the nation's in. They're, oftentimes they're, they're remembering what it was like to be in Jerusalem, to be at the temple, to be at the house of the Lord. Why? Because they're not there anymore. And so, uh, to think about it in terms of, of uh, Psalm 1, right? He says, the one who um, meditates is like a tree planted. Remember we used that architect, uh, uh, the um, agricultural metaphors, right? That they were planted in the land, and when they went to exile, they were uprooted from the land, right? Um, well, they were once planted, Right? They were once in the land, they had the covenant, they had the, they had the temple, they had the presence of God there. And now in these psalms here, they're, they're lamenting because they've been uprooted from the land. Now, um, last section here. Uh, eschatology. My last E word, probably the fanciest one. So give me a minute to explain it. Um, eschatology, um, the way it's normally used, um, no, like for instance, in a book of systematic theology, this number, the last section of the book will be dealing with eschatology, which uh, basically comes down to the study of the last things. Right? Um, and the way it's normally done in books of systematic theology is describing or, ta- or talking about when when Jesus is coming back, how the world's going to end, and in what order of events, etc. That's not the way I'm using it here. Right? That is a more narrow sense. It's a more precise sense. Um, but just to look at your handout here, eschatology, as we're using the term, doesn't refer so much to how and when history will end, so much as where history is going. Old Testament eschatology asks and answers the question, or I should say of, of what the people of God were looking forward to. How was Yahweh going to bring their story to a resolution? So, how did the, for instance, how did the prophets interpret um, Israel's history and where it was going? What, what was God going to do? Because clearly he's, he's, he's not incredibly happy with us. He sent us into exile, right? And uh, we mentioned in, in the way these, um, the way Kings portrays it, and you read the prophets, it's justified exile. This isn't an arbitrary whim um, on God's behalf. They had it coming. They violated, and in fact, God delayed His judgment, and God was gracious for generations and generations in pushing off judgment. Right? If there's anything um, in reading uh, Kings and Chronicles, you realize that it should have happened a lot earlier. Right? And God delays His judgment, the judgment of exile, for generations. Um, but that, that's the question. That how is Yahweh going to bring this story to a resolution? Because the people, remember we said the calling of Abraham was this major turning point where God's going to use this family in order to be part of the, the solution, the sin solution that culminated in Genesis 11 with Babel, but started in Genesis 3. Um, this was be part of the solution. And here, they're, they're completely wrapped up in the problem. They've become part of the problem. Right? They're, they've, they've, uh, they've just mirrored the cultures around them. Right? So how is God 
going to uh, both be faithful to his covenant with them and his um, how is he going to uh, fulfill what he said back in Genesis 3.15 right? so these are the kinds of uh, questions that um, the prophets address right? so they're both addressing things that are happening in their time and that's something that we could go off and <laughs> talk for a while that oftentimes we read the prophets as if they weren't actually speaking to the people who lived around them at that time um, but they're, they're addressing the, the political situations, the, the spiritual condition of the people at that time. But they also will stop and break and then talk about what God is going to do, how God is going to address this situation. Because clearly, the resolution, uh, the fixing of this problem is not going to happen simply because Israel pulls themselves up by their bootstraps. Okay? Um, Alright, so this is um, 3B towards the bottom of the outline there. Um, so what's the role of the prophet? Um, the prophet, um, you know, thinking in terms of more formalized prophets like um, Isaiah and Jeremiah, etc. Um, their role is basically to be an intermediary between God and the people. Um, they are... Um, to the way I use it here is that there are there to be covenant enforcers. Um, so the prophets um, apply the curses or the blessings. Remember, we talked about this this kind of covenant dynamics, like blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Right? The prophets apply, pronounce uh, those blessings or curses depending on the people and the nation's obe- obedience or disobedience. They never create willy-nilly a blessing or create a curse to apply to the people. In fact, one commentator, uh, one of his commentators, spent several pages with this diagram showing all the various prophetic pronouncements of judgment and blessing all over its pages long, and then he ties it back to something in Deuteronomy or Exodus or Leviticus somewhere in the laws. He's saying, look, this is just an application of this all the way down for several pages. Um, I once tried to uh, borrow this commentary to make the pages, and I realized this so many times that it was just, I was like, oh, I'm going to memorize this chart, and it's, oh, wait, it's a lot to memorize. It's just oftentimes, that's exactly what the prophets were doing. They weren't creating things, they were applying um, the pronouncements of the covenant. Um, So when the people are straying, when the people are sinning, when they're moving away from God, the prophet says, Return to God. Okay? This is because it's just you can either you know you can lure them with a stick or you can lure them with a carrot. He says um, these things await you. God will do these things on your behalf if you return, or you're moving in this direction, and this is what's going to happen if you continue to rebel. And sometimes there's a cutoff point where it says, okay, now judgment is coming. So expect this to happen, even though the, sometimes the people would repent, temporarily repent, and then the, the blow would be softened. God would still show his grace in softening the blow. But in showing himself just in the fact that, yeah, this going to, the covenant is going to be um, administered. Question. Mm-hmm. Um, you used the term applying the blessings and the curses. Um, and, you know, refresh my memory if I'm missing something. But in general, the prophets weren't actually saying... Okay, God's going to do this, so 
mm-hmm. it's happening now. I mean, as in, like, they put up their hands and stuff. Right, right, right. So I guess my question is, is when the curses occurred, did they look at the prophets as though we should have listened to them, or did they look at the prophets as though they brought this upon us? It's like <laughs> there's some kind of sorcerer or whatever that did this. Um, yes. <coughs> I guess the short answer would be yes. <laughs> but uh, it just because it depends. It depends on the crowd, depends on the prophet. Um, yeah, there is the way I describe it is for instance, one of the best things, uh, examples for me, is before um, Solomon died. Right, Solomon, uh, God tells him the kingdom's going to be taken from you because you've been so wicked and idolatrous. But he says, but I'm not going to take all the kingdoms because I promised David that he'd always have a descendant. So there's this top-down declaration by God. Right, This is going to happen. Right? And, um, but it, it, doesn't, it doesn't happen in Solomon's lifetime. But then you go to the next, um, I think it's the beginning of 2 Kings. Um, when you have the story of his son, the successor, right, the next king, Rehoboam, and what you find is um, this bottom-up description of how it unfolds historically, bad decisions here and this, and then the kingdom splits, and they say, oh yeah, this was in fulfillment of what God said to, to Solomon. So you have the, the, the top-down explanation, in this case, things like the prophet, this is happening. And then it normally would just wind up playing itself out in, in, terms, of, in terms of providence, like just the, the way um, things unfolded. Now, if there was a prophetic pronouncement, you know, like Moses, you know, then says, you know, I'm going to turn the sea into blood, and he does it right there, then yeah, you make the more quick one-to-one connection between the prophet um, and and the miracle or the blessing or the curse happening there. But um, oftentimes, that's not exactly the way, you know, in, in, you know, in... Ten days, this is you're going to lose you know, in battle, and you know that's not normally the way it happened. Right? Um, but you would, they would find out historically as things develop. Okay, we're losing, um, we're losing battles, we're losing people in, in war. Um, we have famine in the land. I said, oh yeah, well these are all things that God said, and these are all things that Moses said in Deuteronomy. Um, now there were times I believe it was in Jeremiah where there were some people that were really upset with him because they, they said, you know, he was, he was preaching the word of God and all these bad things. They were saying, we're not going to listen to you because all these bad things are happening. We'd rather go back to our, our foreign gods because we probably think that we're getting them ticked off by abandoning them and going back to Yahweh. And, you know, they tied it to, directly to, to Jeremiah. Um, but I can't, I, can't think of, I can't think of an example of something that happened like instantaneously. Um, well, I was thinking more in terms, I think you kind of answered it, is that, you know, we read the Old Testament and we see that because the people did this, God did this. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking in terms of their mindset when they disobeyed, did they look at it as though, okay, God's punishing us and, and recognize that, or were they often going, that person is possessed by a foreign god or is yeah. a foreign god? You know? No, I think normally it's going to be one of those things with hindsight. Is twenty twenty because yeah. they'll find later on somebody calls them repentance and say yeah you're right you know you find oftentimes where um there's like punctuated points throughout the Old Testament Nehemiah <coughs> nine is one of them where they where you have a, a biblically inspired history of Israel in the chapter or so right and they recount the, and they recount all the events and they said and when they do that they say oh yeah all these things these bad things that happen is because we're unfaithful to the covenant so it was just you carrying out exactly what you would say. But in the normal way it carried out was top-down pronouncement, and then the way it 
happened was just in the day to day. God, you know, God in Romans one sense, God um, gave them over to their own sin and it just yeah. you know, God judged me. You know. um, you have, you have a question to come? Um, I was going to say um, how the people reacted to the prophets. Though Jesus answered that when he said, "Well, they look what they did to the prophets." Sometimes you find that they get popular but for the wrong reasons. I think that happens with Ezekiel, uh. where there's a statement there after some of the stuff he happens that he says takes place, and um, people are kind of seeing him as, oh, look what he can do. He can say stuff, and and the, you know their hearts are still in the wrong place. They're still not seeing the gravity of what you know Ezekiel's ministry is all about. Yeah. Anyway, I was just curious. Um, Ecclesiastes, when was it written in Solomon's life? Was it when he was still well, had some good or near the end? Or? Um, I think it's towards the end. You probably know more about any kind of dating issues. Um, I don't mean relationships. It's <laughs> <laughs> you might know more about it. But um, uh, I, think, I, mean, I think the general consensus is that it's probably written towards the end of his life, reflecting back. You know, the richest man, the wisest man, the world has made, and as a result of being here, that means the, the kind of the weight of your mistakes are so much more significant. Looking back at his life, and then you know, at the end of the day, saying all of this was chasing after vapors, and then you know the best thing, the wisest thing, is just to follow the word of God. I mean, um, but I haven't spent much time looking at you know arguments for dating and stuff. But as far as I know, the general, at least conservative consensus, is that it's written late, later in his life. Um, Okay, so now uh, last last point here, the prophetic offer, um, and I stated that intentionally as it's God holding out, saying, "Listen, if you do this, if you obey, these kinds of things can happen." And um, a lot of this was aimed at this community here, this post-exilic community. Right? What do I mean by post-exilic? That's post. After the exile, after the exile, right? the, the exile, those that were coming back. Remember, we said that the ten northern tribes. Never, there was never any kind of unified return to the land. That's why the arrow doesn't come back um, here and there, sure, but never in any kind of unified sense. Where after the decree of of Cyrus, you know, there's a remnant, but people do go back um, to uh, to Jerusalem, right? and. Um, the prophets were holding out this hope that, okay, if you repent and you trust in me and you realize that I've disciplined you as my own child, right, um, and then there are things that I will do for you, I will restore you. Right? Because they've been seen as, as a byword and uh, they, were, they were seen as um, um, kind of, they were being mocked among the nations. This is also one of the things in the covenant that people will see them and... Um, and he's saying, listen, um, there's going to come a day, this is prophets in various places, I've given you some examples, um, where I'm going to restore, and this, a whole, there's a series of the word new, such and such. Um, so, like, for instance, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is, there's going to be a new 
uh, temple and you know commentators and different schools of thought how should we interpret that but somehow in some way God says I'm going to there's going to be a restored temple right and um, there's going to be a new David that is to say David himself is not going to be not referring to the historical David but there's going to be a new king from David's line that will shepherd the people of God so let's look here in, Deuter- in um, Ezekiel, I believe it's 37. I did that from memory there. Um, yes, okay. Um, what's interesting, you know, is that the Ezekiel 37 begins with this, this well-known uh, account of this vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. And um, the interpretation later... Um, Explains what this strange vision of these dried out bones in this open valley mean. The va- these dry bones represent these bodies of, of dry, you know, all these dry bones represent the nation. That the nation looks beyond hope. It's in exile. Okay? So it is uh, essentially it's dead, dead. Okay? It's not just dead. The bones are the bones are desiccated. They're dried out. They're, they're it's there's no hope for them. Okay? And um, God says to Ezekiel, speak to these bones. And he does, and he says, little by little, there's these muscles and these sinews that come back on. You can see this happening in kind of done with really nice special effects today, and they come back, and these people are are resurrected. And this represents again the nation, whereas they they look like they were destroyed and with no hope. That God Himself, through His act once again uh, of of saving and delivering these people, um, through it, because of His love, His covenant love for them is going to um, restore and, and rejuvenate the nation. Right? Um, and this this vivid imagery just lets you know that this is completely a work of God. Right? Um, so let's see in verse 11. Then he said to me, that's God, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They said, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Etc. I'm going to skip this. So there's this reuniting and rejuvenating of the nation. Then um, jump over to verse 24. Um, He says, my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Um, Then they will live in the land, etc. All the blessings that they lost are being returned. But what I want to focus on is a a rejuvenated nation and a new David that's placed over them. A new Davidic king. And in verse 26, I will make my covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. So he's... That's also on the outline. But <laughs> just, now, I couldn't find, uh, at least when I was looking over it really quickly, I was trying to find one crystal clear um, passage. And I know there's one that just either don't have it highlighted or something in my Bible. Um, which describes also what God's going to do in, in this process is essentially going to be like a new exodus. Um, some of you may remember that I said that the exodus event becomes this model, this great example, this paradigm for God's saving delivery. And the deliverance from uh, from oppression and evil and, and sin. 
And uh, there are times that the prophets, I don't remember which one says, you're going to look back at the Exodus. What, what I'm going to do is going to be so great, you're going to look back at the Exodus, and you're not, you, actually, in fact, you won't look back. You'll forget the Exodus. Right? It, it'll make the Exodus look like nothing. Right? Because what I'm going to do is going to be so great, the deliverance that I'm going to bring to the people. So it's kind of Exodus 2.0, this ramped up idea of um, that, you know, you think that was great. What I'm going to do is even more amazing. And lastly, there's, um, there's going to be a new covenant. This is all bound up together. I'm, I'm distinguishing them for the sake of clarity. But you even saw it there in, in uh, Ezekiel 37. Right? We said, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Now, the classic verses in the classic passage is uh, Jeremiah. So just go back one book. Uh, Jeremiah 31. Well, two books. I was I always forget it. Two Lamentations. Jeremiah 31. What's interesting about this passage is Jeremiah 31, 31 through um, I think it's like 34 is cited in the New Testament is the longest Old Testament block that's quoted in the New. So the New Testament frequently quotes from the Old Testament all over the place. But it's this block that in, in Hebrews 8 is quoted in its entirety. That uh, 31 through 34. Um, verse 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord... When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time. After that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. They will be my people and I will be, and they, um, I'm sorry, I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer a man will teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So this is the, the pronouncement of this coming new covenant, which, the way I state it is, it fixes the problems of the old covenant. And the problem of the old covenant wasn't that the stipulations were bad, Right? Or, or God failed to do something. But it was the, the problem was that the people couldn't keep the law. Right? The people were sinners. Right? So God reveals who he, who he is and reveals what it looks like to be somebody transformed by grace. But they were, they were usurpers by nature that wanted to put themselves on the throne rather than God. Right? So any time that there's this banging of heads between what... God wants to do and what I want to do, God always loses. So the problem is with the human heart, not with the law. The law is good and righteous and holy, as Paul says. So the fix, the promise of the new covenant, he says, is that I'm going to give these people a new heart so that the law, as good as it is, won't simply be something out here, right? But it's going to be hidden on, in their heart. It's going to be written on their heart so that they will have um, bubbling up from within them is going to be this, this desire to uh, serve the Lord. Right? Um, that's what, that's what um, the issue is, is that he's going to address the root issue of um, the failures of the covenant. And I didn't write it here, and I don't know why I didn't write it here. Um, it's, it's the idea that um, not only is there going to be, become a great Davidic king that's going to rule over the people of God and defeat the enemies of God, etc., but there's this also this character of the, the suffering servant. 
right, which uh, basically almost nobody put together right, until, until Jesus came along and said, oh, they're, they're, they're the same person. They're, they're me. Right? Um, uh, the Isaiah 52, 53 character. Right? The how, how was God going to bring about redemption? Right? You have the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. You have a couple of statements. You have Isaiah. Israel, the nation is a servant, but it's a blind servant. It's a deaf servant that doesn't listen to God's word. It's contrasted with this servant of the Lord who's going to come. Right? Um, servant of the Lord, capital S, capital L. Um, that's going to bear the sins of the people. He's, he is both identified with Israel, right? but he's also going to minister to Israel. Right? And he's going to bring them back to God. Yeah. Um, maybe I didn't put it in there because I can't. New, new servant. I mean, I guess. Um, so, and uh, it's the genius of Jesus that he says, yeah, these two strands, they're not. They're not distinct. No one would have said, "Okay, the king, the, the, the kingly, um, the great Davidic king is not going to be this person who's going to die." In fact, in the intertestamental period, uh, among the uh, the Qumran community, the De- who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, they believed in at least two messiahs: a kingly messiah and a priestly messiah. Right? They would, they just would not have said they're the same person. Um, so, yeah, like I said, so the Old Testament closes with you know you have these these high hopes for this post-exilic community. They're not thinking, oh, this is going to happen, you know, at least 400 plus years from now when when Jesus shows up. They think, okay, we get our act together, this is what's going to happen. But um, the truth is, is that even though there were small little revivals here and there, um, unified repentance really doesn't happen. Um, There's still, I remember it's in, I I think it's in Nehemiah, where people are still uh, violating the Sabbath, which is the sign of the covenant that God gives to Israel. Um, right? Remember that circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The uh, Sabbath is to the, the covenant with Moses, um, the sign of the covenant with Moses. Um, and they're still violating the Sabbath, and they have all these, they're still working on a lot of issues. So essentially, the, these high hopes that are for this immediate area, this immediate time, rather, um, they, they don't happen. Unless, and and in fact, they're never, you know, they don't, it's not like, okay, the Babylonians are defeated and now we're going to go back to the land. The curse of that covenant being taken to exile under the authority of foreigners gets stretched out from the Babylonians and then they usurped by the Persians, right, the Medes and the Persians, then eventually by the Greeks. And then, you know, this, this little slash here refers to the, um, the 400 years, we talk about the intertestamental period between the... Um, Old Testament, New Testament. So when you get to the New Testament time, the power is uh, in Rome, right? So under, the, under the Roman thumb, right? And then finally, this is when um, you have this movement that started by John the Baptist saying, we need to repent. If we want the blessings of God, we need to repent. Right? We, we teach, that's, that's what the covenant is all about. You, If you want to enjoy, you need to live in, har- in harmony with with God, you need to repent and turn back to Him. Um, and so, the Old Testament is essentially a book that ends without a real full conclusion. It's open-ended, and that's the point: is that reading the Old Testament leaves you with this. Okay, there's so many little threads that are interesting that don't get resolved, and where is this all going? Okay. And um, so, next week, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know the answer. But yeah, next week, um, we're going to start with 
just picking up that. Scott's going to be leading class here, and I have to, this metal pad here. Led by Scott Simmons. Understanding the New Testament. It's in color. Yeah, it is. It's, they really shelled out the, <laughs> <laughs> I don't get a color. Um, so it's from the 27th to the 18th. And so it's going to be here, right? There's room 12. Um, and Scott's going to pick up on um, some of these themes and explore some others and, and go through the New Testament. So then we can understand how these two things mesh together. I just want to also give you a... Uh, oh, yeah. He's so humble. Matt didn't even get color. <laughs> Matt didn't get color. Um, so there are three classes that are going to be um, starting next week. Uh, so there's uh, Scott, which again, right here in this room, so if you want to just transfer over so you can get the whole Bible. Um, and then there is uh, the, the Devotional Life by Matt Ryman. That's going to be in, uh, in the comments. Okay, Same dates, November 27th through December 18th. And then there's Suburban Evangelism, led by Chuck Burian, also from the 27th to the 18th, uh, at 10.45 in the comments. Um, so that will be during the second service. Um, now, one thing I want to close with, just because this is who I am, if you know me, it makes sense. Um, it is, couldn't, uh, couldn't talk about this stuff without recommending some books. And there are a lot more that I could recommend, but I didn't want to carry a big bag. Um, one would be, um, well, Dominion and Dynasty, not the easiest, ent- it's not an entry-level book, well, Old Testament theology. Um, one, which I'm kind of embarrassed to show you, because when one of my dogs was a puppy, he decided to chew up the cover, so you can see which books were on the lower shelves, um, is this God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. It's a fantastic little overview. And you'll find um, some of the stuff I, I, I borrowed from him. Um, but just a great book. Um, it's small, but it really does give you a really great guided tour. And he also traces um, a unifying theme of the Bible as the kingdom of God. Um, the Servant King uh, by T. Desmond Alexander, or T.D. Alexander in the book, um, the Bible's portrait of the Messiah. They really He traces out Genesis 3.15 quickly throughout the Bible in, in most of the books and shows you how that unifies uh, the Bible. And then there's this other, um, Simon Austin's uh, A Better Way, Jesus in Old Testament Fulfillment. So he goes kind of themes, a better king, a better temple, a better priest, etc. And these are all kind of entry-level books that are really helpful. Um, Trump Long has written a book called Emmanuel in Our Place, Seeing uh, Christ in Israel's Worship. That's also very helpful. And so there'll be maybe two, each section will have maybe two or three chapters in each section, and then the last chapter will be how those themes are fulfilled in Christ. Very readable, and um, Christ of the Covenants is, uh, is kind of a classic work. It isn't as readable, <laughs> but it's got a lot of good information in there. Um, any recommendations? On books? On this kind of stuff? Uh, what's the... There's uh, the drama of redemption. Oh yes, the drama of redemption by uh, Goheen and Bartholomew. That's another uh, one of these whole Bible. Um, yeah. United. Yeah, that's actually a really good book. Um, I just finished reading that. A little longer. It's a little bit longer than these. It's not terribly long, but it's has some maps and, and, and you know I've read a bunch of these only because sometimes you have one says something and that the others doesn't or states in a way that sticks in your mind more. So, um, 
But yeah, there are a lot of, and it's probably more so within the last maybe 30 years than before, a lot of really good, smaller introductions that, that just because they're small does not mean that they lack in substance. Um, so good stuff like that. Okay, any last questions or comments? Okay, so let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, again, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we realize that during these last five weeks, it's like uh, drinking water from a, uh, <laughs> a fire hydrant, Lord. There's a lot to take in, Lord, and just doing it in just a couple of hours over five weeks is, is, is never enough to capture all the riches that, that are in there. Lord, I just pray that, um, that what's been said has been helpful to your sons and daughters, Lord God, and um, that you would use this time to once again ignite a passion and a fire to to look at what's in the Old Testament and to see how these themes and, and are ultimately always pointing to Christ and can only really find their full significance in the personal work of Jesus, Lord. Um, and uh, as we as those of us who are going to worship now, prepare our hearts, Father, to um, to understand and to process and to live out the deep things of God, Father. And we pray all these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Thank you. <coughs> I'm learning a lot of things.